Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you. 
Pause. Today is my son Benjamin's 19th birthday. He's the baby in our family, and we've been celebrating him all weekend. Had a beautiful, wonderful party on Saturday night, and been just thinking about him, praying for him all weekend. Last night at midnight, I kind of nudged my husband and said, 19 years ago, right now, Ben was being born. And he's like, let me go back to sleep. <laughs> he's tired. <coughs> it was such a peak experience for me as a mother because his birth heralded the day that I finally felt like I had been successful in achieving a goal that I had been working towards for just years. And I want to tell the story of that today tied to this song because this song, Come Thou Fount, has been my own personal medicine for the last 20 years. And the story is one that I want to save for my children and my grandchildren, my posterity, and also for anyone who's going to listen to it, who happens to come by in the days, months, years to come. So it's October 25th, two. 2021 and um, it feels like just yesterday my husband and I welcomed our son into our home but it's been 19 years so here's the story behind come thou fount I really started learning about this song in my uh, 20s. I, it wasn't part of my childhood. I know it's an old, familiar Christian hymn that used to be in the Mormon hymn book. And then for some reason it was taken out. So the hymn book that I grew up with did not have Come Thou Fount in it. There was a version of it, but not the one that's the traditional. And so um, I did not learn this song when I was a child. So it wasn't written on my heart the way certain hymns are that I sang throughout my childhood and teens. It became a favorite hymn during the years that I was a young mom. And I, I started to recognize how beautiful of a hymn this was. And it became a favorite hymn around the death of my, my brother, Dave. <clears throat> Dave died in 2001. So it's been just about 20 years since he passed away. And just to give you some background on Dave, he was my best friend. We grew up together in a family with eight children. We were two of the middle children. He was the third son. I was born after him. And then we have three little sisters and a younger brother. And Dave and I were siblings who were close and friendly and just 
loved each other with our whole souls. And um, when Dave was 12, he started to smoke cigarettes, which is very much, much against our faith, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have a health code, and it includes not smoking or drinking alcohol. We don't drink things that are addictive like coffee and tea, and we try to live this health standard that's that's pretty high compared to our peers. But in, when he was 12, Dave made the decision to start, start smoking cigarettes. Soon after that, he started smoking pot. And like so many teens do when they start with marijuana as their, their first drug of choice, uh, it's a gateway drug for some people, especially those with addictions and their heritage. And we had raging alcoholism on both sides of our family and um, going back generations. So for us to, for someone like me to start drinking, it would be very tenuous because we know that these things kind of pollute the the family for three generations. And so uh, we're much at much higher risk for alcoholism than those who don't have that family pattern. And this is something I taught to my kids when they were teenagers. You know, some people can drink one drink and they're fine. For us, it's embedded in our genetic code that, you know, the alcoholism is there and it's something to be wary of that for you, it could be devastating to take that first drink. And so, um, Dave became an alcoholic by the time he was about 16. He um, started using hardcore drugs, cocaine, LSD, anything he could get his hands on, he would get high with. And this led to a lot of criminal behavior, dealing drugs. He would steal things to sell for his drug habit, and he would break into people's homes and steal their stuff. One time he stole a car. And every time he was caught, uh, he ended up in front of a judge. And most of the time in Detroit, when a kid's parents showed up at court with him, uh, they let him go because they figured, you know, it's probably better for the kid not to not to spend time in juvenile detention if possible. But the day came when, when Dave finally did qualify for, for juvie and he went for a couple of months and it only made him worse. He really got into some serious seriously bad behavior while he was there and when he came out um he was just really troubled and uh he went on to to lead a life as an adult that um included 17 lockups for various crimes and he um ended up dying of a drug overdose and so amidst this this adult life he had three marriages one child and uh, just kind of a sad life. And through it all, you know, he was my best friend. He, we just helped each other. He was so funny. My brother Dave was one of the funniest people you'd ever know. And he always would encourage me to look on the bright side of things when my, my own life was a mess and just felt like it was getting messier and worse through my early 20s. There was Dave with all of his humor helping me to laugh and look on my life from his perspective, which is, yeah, Jen, at least you're not locked up, you know, much. <laughs> and, um, and he just, you know, so funny. One time, he'd get me with his mental illness jokes. Just, just get me. Um, visitation for the mentally ill. For the, uh, the schizophrenic in you, we will be serving beer and pretzels for your adult self and milk and cookies for your child self. So 
help yourself. <laughs> it's this type of humor that, that just would get me. And it, it always lifted my spirits. So growing up, I could not imagine living out my days on earth without my brother by my side. And yet that has been my reality these past 20 years. And there's a hole, a gaping hole in my heart because he's not there. He's not here. And uh, I don't know that that hole will ever be filled, but there it is. So for Dave's funeral, my mom asked that my three sisters and I sing with her, Come Thou Fount. And so we did. We sang it at his funeral. And um, since that time, it's been kind of like my own personal medicine. And when Sally DeFord arranged this song with her amazing abilities to just take something special and make it amazing. Um, I grabbed her version of it as my own. So the accompaniment track that I just sang along to is the Sally DeFord arrangement, which if you Google her, Sally DeFord music, she's a Colorado composer who I love her song. I love, I love her music. And she's put her arrangements online for free so that any singer can go and grab the accompaniment track and use it for their own covers. And she's just been so generous about her work. I contacted her one time and said, you know, I've made a concert out of all of your songs. Um, and would it be okay with you if I share it online? And she said, absolutely. You know, the only tricky wicket is if you start to make money from it, then I would need a royalty. So I'm like, great. If I ever do that, I will definitely, you know, sign a contract and we'll do that. But I offer this now on Colin as a free will gesture from her and from me, my, my own humble rendition of it. But like I said, it became, it has become my personal medicine. After my brother died, I went through a depression that put me in the hospital for a few days. I was there for um, three days. I was suicidal and I was depressed and lost. I was very lost. And when I came out, I um, was determined that I was going to get better because I wanted to live. I wanted to live for my husband, my four kids. I didn't want to be this broken, disabled woman, you know, uh, suffering from this depression. It just, I did not want that for my my children who are all entering their teens and I didn't want their memories of mom to be mom crazy and sick and de just depressed. So I set the goal to try and prepare my body to have another baby. And as crazy as it sounds, it, it really filled me with hope to, to potentially have another child. And I decided to memorize this song, Come Thou Found, all three verses. So I, I wrote out the verses on a piece of paper and I carried it with me everywhere I went. And every time I felt a little bit down or I was missing Dave or I was just depressed, I'd pull it out of my pocket and I would run the words through my mind. And again, it was my own personal therapy, my own medicine. And I was meeting with the therapist during this year. I was I was actually meeting with two therapists. I had one traditional, a man from my church who was so helpful. And then I was meeting with a therapist in Boulder who specialized in uh, abuse. And she 
really helped me through the dangerous time after uh, my hospitalization. And she used massage therapy, homeopathics, and just general talk therapy to deal with whatever issue was, was going on. And so that combined with the traditional talk therapy from my other therapist was what I used in the crisis months after that hospitalization. I chose not to use any pharmaceuticals. I'd had a really bad experience when I was 21 using drugs and those, um, those medications were incredibly disabling to me. And I used them for 14 months. And when it was over, I was just like, I don't want to be dependent on these anymore. I want to learn how to live happy without the meds. And so for the previous years before this breakdown, when I was uh, in 2001, I hadn't used any medications for my emotional illness. And even though I went through this crisis time of, you know, the hospitalization and the therapy, I felt like it was important um, just to my own sense of self to see if I could deal with my problems without the medications. And thankfully, I was, I, I was able to do that. So during these months after Dave died in July, up until about January, I had this kind of back and forth uh, between just deep, deep depression and mourning and then trying to be happy and normal and healthy for my kids. And um, I got a job at my son's school. My son was in kindergarten that year. And I got a job as an aide at the elementary school, working with the kids who were disabled. A lot of them had autism or were on the spectrum. And so I worked in that uh, classroom for that fall semester. And it was joyful to me to be there serving in the school. I didn't get paid much, just minimum wage or a little bit more than that. And um, seeing my own three children here and there around the school and out on the playground and then working with these kids, it was very joyful. And I felt like being up and out and doing something productive like that was helpful to my mental health. My oldest daughter had decided on her own to homeschool middle school. She did not want to do middle school. She went for two days and said, I don't want to do this. And so we were fine with her being at home for, for middle school. And sometimes she would come up to the school with me and just work, uh, do her schoolwork in that disabled classroom while I did my job. And so um, it, for that, those months, that, that schedule and that lifestyle just kind of worked for us. But there came an incident in December that really kind of soured me to my kids being in that school. And so um, I pulled all of them out and we decided to go back to full homeschooling in January. And it was in January that, you know, again, surrounded by my family, kids, you know, I went through a, a day of just really bad suicidal overwhelm. I was like, ah, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I, I can be here. You know, it's just so depressed. And there came this little voice into my mind and it was a male voice, a little child's voice. And he said, and I didn't hear it. I just was in my, was in my mind said, you cannot kill yourself because I want you to be my mother. 
And this was as real to me as anything I've experienced in my life. But I was just like, oh, if there is somebody out there in the ether up in heaven who thinks I can pull it together enough to be healthy enough to have another child, then maybe I'm not quite as sick as I think I am. And if, if he thinks that I can do it, you know, maybe I can. And so it was a real moment for me. And then I had a priesthood blessing from my, my husband and my dear friend, Mark. They gave me this blessing. They blessed me that the feelings of suicide would go. Just go away. And they did. And with my next cycle, we conceived this baby. It was such a miracle. I almost can't believe it happened, you know, that I could go from being so disabled, so sick, mourning the death of my older brother to just a few months later, here is this baby and he's coming and I have the responsibility to take care of him and do right by him. It was just such an amazing offering from my heavenly father that he would trust me given the circumstances, to have this child. I still just feel this sense of wonder when I think about it. So it's 2001, no, it's 2002, January of 2002. And I'm expecting this baby. And I'm homeschooling my four older children. And I just go on with life. And previous to that, I, I had felt this spiritual prompting from the Lord to learn how to become self-reliant self with my mothering, to do my own prenatal care, to learn how to give birth on my own, which I had done with my previous babies. But this birth, this child gave me the opportunity to really put my knowledge to the test and see what could happen. And so the months unfolded. And during the summer, I was privileged to go to girls camp with my daughters who are both participating in the girls camp with our church. And I, I just stayed for a night, maybe two, because I was pregnant. I didn't go for the whole week, but I was there with my girls. And when my husband came to pick me up, as we were driving home, we were listening to the radio and they were reporting an incident that had occurred with a mother. Her name was Andrea Yates. She was suffering from postpartum psychosis and in this psychotic state, she had drowned all five of her children, killed them. And she was being charged with, with murder. And I looked at my husband and I said, well, you know, that, that really hits hard. And the reason why is because I had experienced a postpartum psychosis after the birth of my first child and had been hospitalized for six weeks and then done 14 months of medications. We were homeschoolers. We had five children. I'm pregnant. I'm expecting my fifth child. And I knew that the statistics were that out of every thousand women who have a baby, one of them 
will go on to have a postpartum psychosis. And once you've had a psychosis, your numbers flip and it goes to one out of every six mothers have a rebound psychosis after the first. So I had put things into action after each of my pregnancies with my previous children to make certain that I did not go through that horrifying experience again and detailed all of that in my first book, A Mother's Journey. But here I was expecting our fifth baby. It felt like the whole world was talking about this case. Reports on the news, reports on the television. She killed her kids. Postpartum psychosis. It was all right there in my face. And the media was blaming her husband. I saw even things being said like, this happened to her because she was obsessed with natural birth. This happened to her because she was homeschooling. This happened to her because her husband didn't help her change the baby's diapers more. There were all these things being floated out there in the media about why Andrea Yates killed her five kids. All I know is the impact that it had on me. And it really upped the anxiety and the stress of, you know, I've already had this history of mental illness. I was recently re-hospitalized. I'm now expecting this baby. And it felt like everybody was watching me. And they were, you know, there's no question. People knew my history had been very open about my mental health background, my family, the ladies at church. Everyone was deeply concerned about my mental health and this baby coming. Heck, I was concerned. We all were. I made the conscious choice to turn off the news. Just turn it off. Did not listen. Did not uh, do my daily, you know, I'm a, I'm a news junkie. Did not do any of that. Turned it off. And focused in on my music. I started a proactive uh, adventure around feeding my mind with positive, uplifting content, birth affirmations about how I visualized my birth and how I wanted it to go. Six-hour labor at home, perfectly born into my husband's hands. No problems during the rest of my pregnancy or the birth. Smooth sailing, healthy baby. And then I sang. I sang, come thou fount. I sang it every day. I read my scriptures. I read them out loud. I journaled. And from this journal, I, I wrote a book called A Lotus Birth that is published and it's up on Amazon. And my, my birth journal, my pregnancy journal became my way to connect with other women who were doing the same thing that I was on the Birth Love website. As I shared each journal entry, I would get feedback from the other moms, comments on my post. Layla McCracken and her husband had set up this website that was just a place for all of us to gather and share our stories. And as I shared each entry and shared my heart with these, my sisters, who were also preparing for home births, it was such a warm and wonderful place for me to inhabit because Outside my house, all I felt from people around me was a lot of fear. 
I didn't want to be dictated to by other people's fears. I had enough of my own fear and my husband's fears to deal with. I didn't need to, to pile on with everybody else's fears. So I just kind of pushed that outside world back and focused on the daily work of nourishing myself, exercising, taking care of my family, doing school with my kids. We had a very gentle lifestyle that just revolved around my kitchen and this daily purposeful work with my family. Again, no medications. I wasn't on any antidepressants, any anti-anxiety pills. When I felt those sensations, what I would do is quietly excuse myself from my family. I would go upstairs and lay on my bed and breathe. And then I would sing. I would sing Come Now Fount and a couple of other songs. And then I would apply essential oils on myself to lift my spirits. I especially put on the oils that I bought from Young Living at the time. Joy, Harmony, White Angelica, Valor. All of these oils went in and calmed my spirits. Made me feel safe. Brushed away the cobwebs of depression and gave me the courage to go back downstairs, re-enter my family circle, and go back to work. This is how I conducted my days. On top of everything else, you're going to laugh. I was also tending my nephew. My brother had had a son. He died while his wife was pregnant. She was a single mother. And I, I offered to her, to care for that baby during this year. And so I was caring for him and pregnant. And then my neighbor asked if her daughter could come hang out with us after school while she was at work. I said, you know, I don't know if I can do this for free. And so she's like, great, I'll pay you a little bit. So it's a little, little bit of money for us. And there was this friend and it was joyful to have her in our home. I'm not saying it was a stress. It was just one more responsibility. And then, then there was another friend at church who asked me if I'd be willing to do childcare for her. Her son was three, four months old. She was going back to school just part-time. So it was just like three times a week for a couple of hours each time. And she wanted me to take care of her baby. And this is the one, one of the funny side anecdotes of my life. You know, I've had this stigma of mental illness hovering over me for my whole life since I was 21. And so I have all of these women. And I mean, it's like dozens and dozens of women who would approach me time after time. Do you do child care? Would you care for my child? Would you do daycare for my child? Would you take care of my kindergartner half day while I go to work and the bus will come and pick them up at your home? And would you take care of my child? And so it, it says to me, and it's just me thinking logically, that if these women, many of whom are total strangers who would just approach me at the park, if these women in my day-to-day -day life felt like I had it, you know, pulled together in my world to think that they could hand off their most precious thing, their child, to me for care, does it really make sense that I was just this, this crazy woman for all those years and nobody could see it? And, you know, 
I'm just at home crazy with my kids and, you know, no, these families came to me because what they could see is that I was a mom who was on task, functioning, getting up every day, putting on my clothes, going to work, taking care of my kids. And so I laugh when people who don't know me very well, you know, hear that I've done most of my life off the medications. Like, well, she was just crazy then. She was just out of control crazy. And it's like, no, I have had my struggles. I have had bouts of mania and depression. It's true. But I have not gone full-blown altered reality psychotic since I was 21. So little side story to what I'm saying here with, with Ben's story. Um, but this woman approached me. She wanted me to care for her child. We needed the money. She's going to pay me 400 bucks a month. And I said, yes. So on top of everything else, I was caring for three additional children at various and sundry points of my day and my week, homeschooling my four and pregnant. And then, yes, it gets better. And then, I have a dear friend who got in trouble with the law. She was also pregnant and she couldn't go home. So she needed a place to stay. And she asked me if I would bring her in. And I said, yes. You know, when, when I read Les Miserables and read the story of the priest who brought in Jean Valjean and changed his life by you know, saying, you forgot the candlesticks here. Go make yourself an honest man. It's not just a story for me. It's not just a great story and a great book and a mu movie and a musical. I believe the example set by that priest is how we who call ourselves Christians should behave in our day-to-day -day lives. And so when my friend was in crisis, we said Yes. And she came and she stayed with us for a couple of days. And the, the, the stress that brought into my home was just like this tornado that lasted for a couple of days. And then she left. She had stuff she had to do. And then she came back. She came back for a couple of days right before her baby was due. And I, I really can't put into words how stressful that was. But it was just, you know... And I finally just, was like, I, I turned my back on her at that point and just like, I, I have no more to give to your situation. It's, it's too big. I have my own babies coming and I need to quiet things down in my home life and prepare for my own birth. And I felt bad about that, but you know, you give what you can give. So I was a couple weeks out from having Ben. Things quieted down. I was still tending my nephew and this little boy from church and my neighbor's daughter. But our, our home life went back to quiet and we were still homeschooling and um, got to be October. And here's my due date. It came and went. And um, I was a little bit nervous. I was feeling like mm, maybe I should go check make sure my iron's okay. So I set an appointment with my doctor who I, I had not done any prenatal care with anyone, but I did want to get that blood test. So I went and saw him one time. He didn't do any pelvic checks. He didn't do any 
vaginal exam, nothing, just gave me the blood test because that's what I wanted. Cost me 200 bucks. So that was my, my one donation to the medical business was my test. My iron came back normal. So that was a comfort. But during that visit, he and I had a conversation. And he was the doctor who saved my life after my fourth birth when we showed up at the ER and I was down to a 4.7 hematocrit because I had hemorrhaged and was just about dead. He saved my life. And I said to him, you know, if, if something happens during this birth, I'm planning to do a home birth again, uh, would you be willing to come help me in the hospital? And he said, no. He said, if you would be respectful towards me and my knowledge and come get prenatal care, sure, I'll help you. I'll do anything to help you. But if you're not willing to get my prenatal care it is not fair of you to ask me to get out of bed and come help you with your crisis because we know the only reason you would come to the hospital is if there was a problem and it's unfair of you to expect me to pick up the pieces of your birth which he felt he felt like he had done before and I got it you know I, I did not blame him for that posture at all I still don't and I knew there there was no midwife out there who was going to be interested in Again, coming to help me if, if it, you know, I'm not willing to, to let her do prenatal care. This was on me. Some me and my husband. He also said that it's the absolute worst birth plan to expect the emergency room doctors to patch up a botched birth because they really don't see it that much. Most births are induced. Most births take place a couple days before the mom's planning or going to give birth. And so they're very managed. So these days the ER docs do see the, the home births that come in where they have a transfer, but they're really, they're not seeing it that much. And so it's, it's just kind of unfair to them to expect them to, you know, take over when a birth goes bad. So it was just good for me to hear his words, to have that reality check. and just say, if you're going to have an unassisted birth, have an unassisted birth. You know, let the chips fly where they may. And it really wasn't until I was in labor with my son that I was like, you know what? This feels good. I'm staying home. You should just, if you're going by, by instinct, by your internal, you know, just mother's instinct, mother's intuition, I trust that. And my mother's intuition that day was saying, yeah, you're good to stay home. But in the, in the days before the birth, it was just so crazy because my due date came and went. And in Colorado, we have two laws that are on the books. At least we did back in 2002. These may have changed. I don't know what the recent laws are. But back then, it was the law that if your water broke, you had about 12 to 24 hours before you needed to transfer to the hospital for care if you were under a midwife's care. The midwives have these, these laws. And it's also a law that if you go a day past your due date, uh, two weeks, uh, if you go 42 weeks, again, you need to transfer care to a doctor, obstetrician. Midwives are not allowed to, to deliver a child that's past 42 weeks gestation because there's post-maturity issues. So my son, Ben, it's almost like he was thumbing his nose at the medical profession because two weeks exactly to the day past his due date, 
my water broke in my aerobics class. I'm sitting on my yoga mat and here is my water. So I went home and for those next three days, I had a little faith walk with the Lord because I'd never even heard of anyone who had three days of their water breaking because it just doesn't happen. It's a home birth with a midwife. They transfer to the hospital after 24 hours. The hospital birth, you don't get three days to give birth in a hospital after your water breaks. You get 12 to 24 hours and then they'll take your baby. So once we hit 24 hours after my water breaking, I was entering this no man's land of just, I don't know what is normal. You know, again, never heard of it. Didn't know. But my gut instinct was everything was okay. You don't want to put anything up in the vaginal canal with the water broken. You don't want to have sex. You don't want to do any vaginal exams. Nothing. You want to stay very clean and no water birth. I was planning to have a water birth. And with that water breaking, I did not have my water birth. I stayed out of the birth tub once that happened. I just took showers. You don't want anything to go up in there that can cause an infection. So for those three days, I had a trial of my faith. And we persisted. We did school. My husband decided to take that week off from work. And so he was home. We cooked and we ate and we went for walks at the park. On the actual day that I gave birth to my son 19 years ago, my visiting teachers came over. I tended my nephew. My little friend, my neighbor friend, she came over for the afternoon to spend that couple hours with my girls. And when all of those people left, I was sitting at the computer emailing my friend Veronica over in the UK. And I said, oh, these contractions are so hard. I wonder if I'm going into labor. She said, oh, I'll go light a candle for you and say a prayer. You go. Because I, I said, I, I think I need to leave and go focus on this because the contractions were getting hard enough that I, I just felt like I needed to stop what I was doing. So I made myself a labor shake and I was out in the kitchen whipping up that shake in the blender in my bathrobe when my friend, my neighbor, Sue, came over to see how I was doing. Everybody knew I was post-due. She just checked in. We had more people in our home the day of Ben's birth than just like the months preceding. It was like everybody was just aware something's up and I said, hey to Sue, you know, how you doing? But I didn't talk to her too long because I was contracting and she left. And then I went up to my bedroom. And from about six o'clock to 10 o'clock, I just contracted. I contracted every five minutes, four minutes, every three minutes. It was getting hard. It was getting a little um, difficult. And I turned to my music. I sang, when you believe from the Prince of Egypt, Many nights we pray. I love that song. I chose that song to be the theme of the unassisted childbirth movement the year before in 2001. This is our song. When you read the, the lyrics, this is the prayer of the mother who is giving birth alone. Many nights we pray with no proof anyone can hear. No, this birth was the trial of my faith, the trial of my husband's faith. 
Were we going to just let it happen the way we'd hoped and dreamed and wanted and prayed for and even felt guided to do? Or were we going to be overtaken by fear and say, nope, can't do it, scoot over to the hospital and deal with any repercussions over there? At the end of the day, we stayed home. I sang. My husband read the kids' stories. About 10 o'clock, I got up. It was real quiet over there. He had fallen asleep on the floor of the kids' bedroom. They were all four asleep, and everybody was asleep. And I was alone with my labor. And I had this happen during my third child's birth when the whole birth team was asleep and I was alone. And it is kind of a nice time for a mom when she's in labor to not have anybody but the angels attending her. And it was the perfect time for me to really dig deep in my soul and communicate with my father. I was very nervous about having another hemorrhage. I had hemorrhaged so bad after my fourth baby was born that I, I, I did die. I felt my spirit leaving my body after that birth and, you know, I felt my spirit come back into my body and, you know, it was definitely a deathly experience. And I was concerned that, that perhaps the hemorrhage had happened because I squatted during the birth, you know, to get his head out. So because there was all this pressure on my, on my body standing up and at a key moment, um, the spirit whispered to me, no, you're going to be fine. You're not going to hemorrhage and it will be good for you to squat. So I did the first hour of pushing on my bed. And um, during that time, my husband woke up, came in. What do you need? I said, sing to me. So he pulled out our Mormon hymn book and he started singing all of my favorite hymns. And it was perfect. It invited the spirit. It calmed me. It calmed the baby. There was just a quiet, sacred feeling in the room. And I stood up for the second hour of pushing next to my bed. And with each pushing contraction, I gently squatted down and pushed my baby. In between contractions, I sat on my birth ball. And then when the contraction would come, I would stand up and push. I did this for about an hour. And then there was just a moment when he moved. He moved through the birth canal in such a big way. It was just, here he is crowning. Because my water had been broken, I felt excruciating pain as he was being born. In my back, my hips, it was just so painful. And my husband kept applying essential oils on my back during those last few pushes. And they really helped with the pain. And then as Ben's head came out, Paul was right there. He sucked him out with the little bulb extractor, sucked out his nose, sucked out his mouth. And with the next contraction, he was born. And he cried immediately. And Paul and I just looked at each other and we're like, he's okay. And I laid down on the bed and Paul placed our child in my arms. And I laid down and as I looked over at my husband, he was leaping for joy. Yes, you did it. And it was so miraculous and so real and so powerful. I still just, I just had this sense of awe come over me. 
when I think about all the stress we were under that year, all the things happening outside our home, we're able to get to that place of just faith, pure faith. And then Jesus is the one who delivered us. My kids woke up one by one. First, the girls, they came and they saw the placenta being born about 15 minutes after Ben was born. We gathered it up in a towel and put it next to Ben. And then my two little boys woke up. There were six and eight at the time. Andrew came in and I was laying on my left side. So he, was, he my six-year-old, he was just against my back and he couldn't see the baby. And I said, Andy, the baby's here. He said, no. And I said, look. And I held the baby up. And the look of wonder in Andrew's eyes is something I will always remember. And then he said, booyah, booyah, booyah. I have a baby brother. That is the sweetest memory of the birth. And then right after that, I started to go into shock. I started to feel shaky. I felt cold, clammy feelings in my hands and my feet. Uh, and it, a picture took it of me in that, uh, in that moment, I looked white as a ghost. There was something happening that was off with my body. I still don't know what it was. Baby had been born, the placenta had been born, but there was something going on with my body that was, that was off. And I immediately said to Paul, give me a blessing. And he put his hands on my head. And through the power of the holy Melchizedek priesthood, which he holds, he gave me a blessing. And immediately I felt a warmth spread from my uterus up through the rest of my body. And the blood started flowing properly. And a sense of well-being came over me. And the shock, I went out of shock. I wasn't in shock anymore. It was a real miracle. Perhaps there's a doctor out there who can explain what, what was going on. I don't know. All I know is I felt different. I felt like I had been healed. I felt like I had been touched by the hand of God. And he fixed whatever was wrong with me. After that, we just had three days of rather difficult post-birth contractions that they were very painful after this birth. I didn't have any of these pains after my fourth child. And I don't remember them being that bad after my first three. They were definitely bad after my C-section, especially when my daughter would, would latch on and breastfeed and my uterus would contract and had all the pain from the scarring from the surgery. That was painful. But this, this was a, a, you know, a deep pain. And um, during that initial postpartum, I had several memories come into my mind of abuse situations that I was not consciously aware of up until that moment. And I think some of the pain, physical pain around that birth was tied to some of that trauma around being raped and molested. That's just my gut feeling. I had hired a postpartum doula to come take care of me after that birth. She was an Ayurvedic doula. And this type of doula is someone who claims that they can prevent postpartum depression and psychosis with their healing protocol. And so my husband and I made the decision to put 
all of the dollars that we potentially would have spent on prenatal care and a birth into this postpartum care. I had contracted with her well before the baby was born and she showed up and started taking care of me the day he was born. And her care included a 90 minute massage, specially designed for a postpartum mother. She brought me wonderful food and every day four ounces of wheatgrass juice and this turmeric milk that was so yummy. I drank it every day. And this is how I healed from this birth was with the care of my postpartum doula. I also asked my chiropractor if he would come out and check on me and the baby after the day after the birth. And he did. Uh, he did a well baby check, said the baby was great. A little bit of birth trauma around his neck, which he fixed. Uh, I was dehydrated and also low in my iron. And so um, that was not surprising to me because of how physical the birth was. It was, it was a hard birth and I had been so kind of depleted with the water being broke, uh, with my water being broken. It was hard to get enough liquids into me with that being the case. Oh, and on that, during the three days before the birth, every time I ate, I would drip out some water from the amniotic, uh, from the amniotic sac. And I just kind of wore a pad to catch that. And so the water was continually dribbling out for those three days before the birth. Um, so yeah, I was dehydrated. Gosh, it sounds like I'm dehydrated right now. I'm drinking as I talk, but it's not enough. So I had excellent care from my chiropractor, from my doula, and then the ladies from church organized and they brought meals for my husband and my kids for couple days after the birth. My visiting teachers brought a humongous pot of soup. My friend Karen brought a humongous pot of soup. I had a wonderful visit from my dearest friend, Laura Shanley. And uh, Benjamin was born. A couple weeks after his birth, we went back to homeschooling and um, we went on with life. Uh, about a year after he was born, I had this feeling of triumph come over my heart, my soul. Uh, I had been asked by the Lord to learn mothering self-reliance. And with this birth, except for that one little blood test I did with my doc, I did it. I did it. And I'm just so grateful to Heavenly Father for encouraging me, for helping me that even amidst all of this trauma, the death of my brother, my hospitalization, reconciling and remembering some abuse, uh, the stressors, just the normal stressors of day-to-day -day life, extra stress with tending other people's children. And I should insert here too, of all the people who have asked me to tend their children, most of them, I said no. And it's so funny, during the years we were homeschooling, I just had this continual stream of moms asking me to do daycare. And it's like they thought, I was sitting at home twiddling my thumbs while my kids watched television and played video games and I had nothing better to do than to tend their children. I was like, no, we are busy. I am, I am actively teaching my children. You know, we do math and we do language arts and we're over at the park every day doing PE. You know, I'm busy. I don't have time for this on Fridays. We went to a support group and, you know, was very involved with that. It's like, 
I don't have I don't have hardly time to eat. How would I have time to take care of your child? So most of those people I said no to. The year that I was having Ben, I said yes to my sister-in-law, of course, happy to help, wanted to help. And the other two, it was more about just getting a little bit of extra cash in our pockets. The postpartum doula did cost $6,000. I know that sounds like a lot of money. You know, each week of care was $1,000. But based on what she did, and more importantly, what she prevented or helped to prevent in terms of another serious postpartum mental breakdown, which I did not have, uh, you balance the, the $6,000 next to a mental health bill of being hospitalized for a couple of weeks. You know, the $6,000 is a drop in the bucket. It's nothing compared to those mental health bills. And then if we had gone to the hospital and had birth costs and perhaps NICU costs or whatever costs would have been along with that birth, you know, that would all have been on top of the, the mental health bills. You know, we had no bills. Our chiro chiropractor came out and visited for free, who does that. And then this wonderful doula who uh, came and took care of me for those six weeks after the birth. I had a friend, Carrie, at church. When I came back to church, she said, you do not look like a woman who just gave birth to a, her fifth baby. I experienced this rapid regeneration, a rapid restoration that came from this tender care from my doula, my family, my husband, and all these friends from our church who gathered around and supported us. Even though we made a decision that made some of them feel anxious for our sake, for the sake of our baby, they still supported us. And if I could give no other advice than this, it would be for you, if you're getting ready to have a child and you're perhaps going to have it at home because you want to, or because life circumstances are compelling you to do it at home, is to become friends in your neighborhood with other like-minded people so that you can support each other with meals, with tending other children, with whatever you see your needs to be. This is a great thing to do, to just have a network of people around you to provide help, either through your faith community or just your, your neighbors. I think I'm going to wind down now. I'm checking the time here to see how long I've been going. Oh, I have a visitor. Charlie, you want to make a comment? Just uh, give me a thumbs up if you want to say anything. Because I've been going for about exactly an hour. Um, I'm going to wind down the show. Thanks for listening, Charlie. I um, am passionate about music and the power that it has to lift our spirits and heal. And the song I sang at the beginning of this broadcast, Come Thou Fount, was transposed into 528 hertz frequency using the technology that my friend, Dr. Leonard Horowitz, has brought to us. And so I sang it in 528. And um, I will be talking with Len soon. I've not scheduled it yet, but we're talking about doing a show together here on Colin, talking about his music. So that will be upcoming. Thank you so much for stopping by. 
if you'd like to click over to the link that I put in my show page on my Substack, I titled chapter three from my book, Growing Up Prepper, Singing Our Baby Earthside. And it shares more details of the story of Benjamin's birth and how we sang our baby out. Thanks again for stopping by. I hope you are having a wonderful day. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.